All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by Nexo, the only lender offering instant crypto credit lines, which let you use digital assets as collateral to get cash in 45 different fiat currencies and stable coins. You can also park idle assets with Nexo and earn up to 8% annually. This is a company that's a strategic partner of exchanges, OTC desks, and crypto funds, all of which borrow, lend, and grow their assets using Nexo. Explore Nexo.io or reach them at institutions at Nexo.io to learn more. Save money this tax season with LucaTax, the crypto tax software I've trusted since 2014. LucaTax supports unlimited transaction uploads from major exchanges and wallets and offers live chat support if you get stuck. They help optimize your capital gains or losses reporting so you can max out this year's tax refund. LucaTax is offering a special discount for Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners. Just use promo code MasariTax and you'll get $5 off the normal price at just $19.95. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. going on everyone welcome back this is ryan selkis at two bit idiot another episode of masari's unqualified opinions i am ecstatic to talk to my guest today jameson lop who's one of the most uh personally impactful uh folks in in the industry as i started following bitcoin in in 2013 and and just given the uh, wealth of information that Jameson has voluntarily put out for free regarding Bitcoin over the years. Uh, he embodies the ethos of the early community, especially. I'd like to say the community still, but obviously it's gotten a bit more commercial and mainstream since then. Uh, we're going to talk about personal privacy, personal security, uh, and ultimately that's going to dovetail nicely into talking more about CASA, which is a self-custody platform focused on Bitcoin. Um, but that I believe is branched out in, into other assets as well that, um, that Jameson can, can speak a little bit more about. As the CTO and co-founder, are you now this, the, the CEO and president as well? Or, yeah, I know there was no, a I'm change. sticking to the, the technical side of things. We, to the we have had a, a CEO transition recently. Uh, we basically mm -hmm. uh, brought up our, our longtime product manager to step into that role. But I'm happy to stay away from the business side as much as possible. Uh, excellent. Well, I uh, I understand that, and 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 certainly on brand anyway. Um, but Jameson, why don't why don't we start just with your origin story? Uh, and and I'm going to caveat that for anyone that's watching that isn't already familiar with you by saying uh, I think the expectation is that there is little to no personal identifying information uh, that that you will uh, contribute in terms of your early days uh, and, and kind of where you're based and, and, and maybe even prior work history. But um, as much as you can tell or in the way that you want to share what got you into Bitcoin and, and how you came down the rabbit hole and, and got to be in the position that you are now where, uh, you know, you've, you've more or less been in the thick of things for nine years now uh, with respect to Bitcoin development in particular. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I've been full-time Bitcoin for about five years. I was an enthusiast for a few years before that, but really I got interested both from the libertarian philosophical side and the technical side. Um, I'll never really remember the first time I heard about Bitcoin because like many of us, I dismissed it several times before I actually started looking into it. But once I actually did and read the white paper, I realized, you know, from a computer science standpoint that this was solving a very interesting problem that I had never thought about before. And then also as I stepped back a bit and just thought of money and how that operates, the, uh, the idea of money being this abstract concept that should really not be owned by anyone or any group, it made sense to me that that should also be an open source collaborative project. So I felt like trying to create the optimal form of money as an open project seemed like it had a pretty good chance of succeeding, even despite all of the technical underpinnings of what was happening uh, at the protocol level. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, people talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally being anti-fragile systems, right? Some are obviously more fragile than others, but there's, there's certainly uh, this, uh, it's the Lindy effect, right? The, the, longer, that's the longer it doesn't die, the harder it becomes to kill, right? Um, and the, what I have noticed, and I'm sure this is consistent with, with what you've experienced as well, every single problem that has emerged with Bitcoin and to a lesser extent with, with Ethereum as well. It, it, it ultimately seems to get addressed because the community is strong enough, the cohort of, of true believers and, and missionaries is strong enough where folks just emerge to solve problems around the periphery, whether it's infrastructure on the trading side, whether it's custody, whether it's even marketing, um, whether it's refining the cultural ethos of the project in, in a decentralized fashion, which we saw play out over the course of 2016, 2017 with Segwit 2X and, and you know, the, what was at the time uh, and, and maybe for the foreseeable future, the most contentious protocol change that we've seen in the industry. Um, how, how have things changed uh, or, or how, what has your experience been in watching some of these problem areas ultimately just fade away? Um, and how do you think about the magnitude of today's challenges versus the challenges five years ago that were solved or, or uh, generally speaking, like rank order where we've been and where we're going in terms of threats to Bitcoin uh, and, and whether this is now an inevitability and, and we've gotten, you know, so anti-fragile as a community or as a system where it'd be very, very difficult to shut this down because you are, I would say, in one of the cohorts of true believers that says, well, you can never, you can never stop running the software, um, which is true, but I'm wondering more about the practical elements, right? Uh, you know, what, what emerging threats would we still have to overcome or, or what issues would we have to de-risk? Um, and how does that compare to previous challenges? Well, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, but really, I think the, the main thing is over the past few years, we've continued to 
improve our understanding of what the system actually is. That's kind of my thesis that I wrote a few years ago with the Coindesk piece that was entitled Nobody Understands Bitcoin. And that was mainly a point I was trying to make of, you know, even if you understand everything technical about the protocol, or even if you're a renowned economist, or even if you're a businessman who's uh, building uh, companies that are worth billions of dollars, um, there is no one, and I would say even Satoshi, if they're still around, uh, no one can fully comprehend like all the different aspects of this system. It's just grown to be so large and have such a diverse group of people with different incentives that are all playing off of each other. And, and also we're still, you know, figuring out the game theory of, of how the system moves forward. And, um, it's it's these stressor events, I would say, uh, uh, in reference to the anti-fragility that you were talking about, that um, that's where we learn the most is when things start going wrong and when people are suddenly incentivized to come together to try to fix a perceived problem. Uh, it may not even be a problem that everyone agrees is a problem, but it's, it's these stressors that kind of force us to try to collaborate with each other. Sometimes mm -hmm. that results in, in more fighting and, and even now uh, forking off and, and splitting. And, you know, it's just been fascinating to see that evolution over the years. And uh, it's hard to even think through all of the possible future stress events that may happen. I mean, we can definitely rattle a few off the top of our head, like, uh, you know, scaling is an ongoing thing. Privacy, I think, is going to become a bigger and bigger issue in the short to medium term future. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of this, at least the internal strife within the community, is around the fundamental question of what is Bitcoin. And that's one thing that all of us who are deep into this are still trying to wrap our heads around, at least until we get to the point where the protocol is completely ossified and nobody even wants to try to make any changes to it anymore. And we're probably still a fair ways away from that. But... Um, you know, are there things that could kill Bitcoin? I'm, I'm sure that there are. Um, essentially, you would have to sufficiently demotivate all of the Bitcoin proponents so that they felt like it wasn't worth their time to try to fix or improve or maintain the system anymore. And you know, maybe that happens because something that's orders of magnitude better comes along and it's not worth working on the old technology. Or maybe it is uh, because of some sort of catastrophic event uh that people don't think is recoverable from but um it's it's really it's kind of like what you said like either you believe in it or you don't and and part of it i think is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy of if you have a sufficient degree of incentive and belief that people are going to continue to build on the system and make it work then it will continue to work my impression is that after SegWit2x, we're going to cover all the, there's uh, again, a lot to unpack there. And, and I did throw an open-ended question so that hopefully it would elicit exactly the response that you gave, which I think opens up five or six, six different um, rabbit holes that we want to uh, dive down. But uh, the one that maybe we can start with is, is the, what is Bitcoin? You said you still grapple with it culturally. And, you know, I love, um, 
Spencer from Blockchain Capital, his um, his his analogy of the platypus, right? It, it looks like a is it a duck? Is it a beaver? Is it this you know kind of weird looking thing that that when it was first discovered, the biologists uh, that saw pictures of it from the folks that were in Australia that discovered it said, well, this is this is not real. It's clearly some elaborate hoax. Um, Bitcoin has some elements of that for sure. Is it a currency? Is it digital gold? Is it a payment system? I would argue that the SegWit2x resolution, which ultimately led to the user-activated soft fork, which essentially ensured that only SegWit would get implemented. There wasn't going to be any consensus level change that would uh, necessarily create a hard fork in terms of raising the, the block size, which sounds from an outsider looking in like a technical issue, but was really an issue about sensorability of the network and, and who controlled it over time. Um, if you if you look at the resolution, it almost seemed like the decision was made culturally, if not directly, at least implicitly, that Bitcoin is digital, digital gold and it's a settlement layer, right? Um, if you need high value transactions to clear, this is the nuclear bomb resistant protocol that will, will allow you to do that because it's been so hardened. And it is so difficult to co-opt even if you have a bunch of business operators and miners in the same room that are, are trying to push one agenda forward, even if it looks like a smart compromise at the time. Um, I'm curious if, if you believe that, first of all, that is true, or if you're still open-ended about it, because the only counter that I really hear is folks that might say, well, Bitcoin is money. But those Bitcoin is money folks tend to be the same people that 10 years ago probably would have said gold is money, right? So I, I don't necessarily view there uh, being a distinction. Is that consistent with what you think, or do you not know? What, 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 what's your reaction to that as a mental model? I, I step back a bit from the actual perspective of what an individual might believe Bitcoin is, because there are many different perspectives. And I actually try to understand, you know, what is the governance model instead? And I think this is what tripped up a lot of people uh, over the multi-year scaling debates, because we as humans are used to existing within fairly well-defined models of governance, uh, whether that is through um, various levels of government, nation states, uh, cities, counties, municipalities, whatnot, or even just governance uh, through you know corporate structures of our employers, then you know we we have generally fairly well understood written rules of where the power is and who can exert the power to make decisions and get things done. But I think that Bitcoin inverts this model on its head. And instead of being this top-down hierarchical command and control governance model, it's the exact opposite where it's a bottom-up, you know, organically flowing from consensus of all of the individual participants into whatever this abstract thing we call consensus is. Because as a system, 
Bitcoin is just a protocol. It's a, a way for machines to talk to each other, to come to a machine consensus of the state of the system. But, you know, that machine consensus is, at least in theory, supposed to just be automating what the human consensus is for the system. So what is the human consensus for the system? Well, there's no straightforward way to measure that. You can't vote on it it's not a one human one vote type of model it's not a you uh you can vote based how many coins you have type of model um i would even argue that the the famous phrase you know from the white paper like one cpu one vote is actually not how the human consensus for the system works rather that uh which is often known as nakamoto consensus is only for deciding amongst uh, the uh, valid possible blocks that are on the network uh, for deciding you know, which set of, of valid blocks is the most valid, you know, with the most work behind them, whatever. But it, that itself does not allow you to change the underlying rules of the network. So, you know, how do we measure this? Well, uh, we, we yell about it a lot. Uh, we, people write lengthy blog posts and tweet storms and uh, you know, that uh, sometimes sways people's opinions. Uh, but ultimately, we run our nodes and the nodes are essentially supposed to be the extension of ourselves uh, when it comes to consensus for this. So, you know, I run a variety of nodes for a variety of reasons, both, you know, personal uh, use, um, various side projects that I do. And of course, you know, for enterprise use uh, at CASA and by me deciding which nodes uh, I'm running, what software they're using, what rules they're enforcing, I am having my own impact uh, upon the broader consensus of the system, just saying, you know, I will only accept transactions or my business will only accept transactions that conform to these rules. Now, you know, what happens when not everyone agrees on that? That's when things get really interesting and, uh, and ultimately, we have either some sort of standoff or we, we have uh, exit and forking. But um, that has been one of the most fascinating things, I think, to watch over the past few years. And I, I expect that, you know, it's not going to be over anytime soon. I, I expect that as long as there are incentives for people to try to find ways to inject control over parts of the system, they're going to do that. And I think we're seeing some interesting things happen in various other networks of people uh, trying to create new types of governance that are different from Bitcoin and perhaps concentrate power in different sets of actors on the network. And of course, you know, that has pros and cons depending on what you're trying to do. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, you have been almost exclusively focused on Bitcoin uh, for the, the amount of time you've been in the industry. But you hear very different opinions from quote unquote Bitcoin maximalists. And I won't necessarily label you as a maximalist because uh, you've already, uh, I think, hinted at something that is, is by definition more open-minded than, than folks that are exclusively religiously Bitcoin only. Uh, and that is some of these other protocols, even if you're not working on them, it, it sounds like you support their right to exist and support experimentation across a variety 
of uh, different, you know, feature optimizations, uh, consensus algorithms, what have you, um, because the concept of exit is so deeply ingrained in people that were, were into Bitcoin from the early days. Uh, and I've heard Eric uh, Voorhees uh, pretty eloquently kind of lay this argument out as well. I think Balaji and in his introduction to, to Nakamoto, uh, his new project uh, wrote, wrote something along the same lines that one element of decentralization is decentralization amongst coins. And let's see where the greatest ecosystems emerge and what the greatest feature sets and applications are without prejudging that this necessarily has to come from Bitcoin. How do you reconcile your overwhelming interest in Bitcoin with this open-mindedness about everything else? Is it just, hey, I'm taking a look at all these other science experiments and maybe I'll start dabbling in more of them if, if they hit certain milestones? Um, or is it, I'm only one person, I only have finite attention, so I'm going to focus on this thing that I, I have conviction in and I know is going to be around for a while? Well, I mean, there's a million different reasons why uh, you can make claims that Bitcoin is the best uh, positioned to remain in a top position. Uh, I think that, you know, due to network effects, that that is likely to continue at least for the short term. Um, it's funny regarding some of the more philosophical things in the, uh, the tribalism and uh, purity tests, uh, especially with, uh, with maximalism. Um, I, uh, for quite a while, considered myself a Bitcoin maximalist, uh, you know, going back to the origins of the term, you know, Vitalik Buterin actually coining the term as a sort of derogatory thing, and then many Bitcoiners taking that and adopting it and calling themselves maximalists. Um, I, I kind of, I take it to the absurd uh, extreme now because, you know, there are certain uh, parts, you know, sub- I guess, sections of maximalism that I feel almost go to more extremes. So sometimes I, I even jokingly refer to like Bitcoin extremist or Bitcoin terrorist, you know, because of the level of purity <laughs> tests that are happening. And, you know, I, at least once or twice a year, I get uh, attacked myself by uh self-described Bitcoin maximalist for one reason or another. Usually it's because I have mentioned some other project and mm -hmm. due to the nature of Twitter, things are taken out of context. Um, I would say that in monetary terms, I am a Bitcoin maximalist in that I, I think that it's only natural that the vast majority of uh, wealth will end up in one you know, currency system. It just, it makes more sense because you get more utility when you're all using the same thing. Um, also from a technical standpoint, I have a lot of experiencing uh, running infrastructure on these other networks while I was at BitGo and uh, they made my life an operational nightmare. Uh, I had so many problems with uh, nodes on other networks and that's part of the reason why I still continually run uh, nodes as uh, experiments myself for these other networks just to see, you know, does it look like they're improving? Does it look like they're degrading? Uh, are they making new types of trade-offs in order to make their, their performance look better than it actually is? Uh, these are all fascinating things for me to follow as experiments. 
but from a monetary standpoint, you know, I'm not investing significant fractions of my own money in them. Uh, I'm just continuing to see uh, what the progress of those other projects are is in relation to uh, Bitcoin. And of course, I'm also uh, watching a number of the other Bitcoin forks uh, more from a governance interest standpoint uh, than a, a tech interest standpoint. So uh, suffice to say, I am, I am a maximalist from the perspective of people who are generally in favor uh, and focus on other projects other than Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. to many maximalists, I am not maximalist enough. <laughs> no, no, no true Scotsman, right? Um, your, your experience both at, at CASA and then previously at Bitco in, in studying these systems and particularly the, the node infrastructure uh, and, and, and uh, general network size and health and, and, and functionality, what, what has improved uh, and, and what has more or less stayed the same or gotten more unwieldy? Um, Bitcoin has its own issues, which, you know, maybe we can go into at a 30,000 foot view. But the one thing that we do know about the Bitcoin network is the size of the blockchain is relatively constrained because of this, quote unquote, artificial constraint of the block size per block. Uh, Ethereum is a totally different story. And it can be a bit more unwieldy. I know this from, from our own infrastructures team uh, and, and, and their research and work spinning up, you know, Ethereum node infrastructure. A lot of companies rely on Infura, uh, which is a consensus project because it takes such a massive um, resource expenditure to, to properly maintain Ethereum nodes. Um, that seems to be a good starting point just to talk about the differences between the two, but then I'd love to uh, go beyond that and think which in the long tail of assets are projects that are maybe solving this correctly versus um, ones that just right out of the gates are going to be a, a complete nightmare to, uh, to run as a decentralized network versus, you know, maybe one where there's an oligopoly of uh, node providers that are, are essentially, uh, you know, running this cartel. Yeah, so I think the fundamental issue, um, it's the same issue that rose up during the Bitcoin scaling debate, but you can see it in many other networks, or at least the networks that are actually used. Um, and that is this trade-off between uh, the things that you can optimize for. Um, you know, the, it's, it's not possible to optimize for everything uh, simultaneously. You have to make mm -hmm. some uh, trade-offs. And the, the biggest one really is uh, the cost of transacting on a network versus the cost of being able to fully validate the entire history of the network. That is kind of what I distilled the scaling bait to balance uh, down to after several years of arguing that 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 one trade-off and uh, you know we've even seen that trade-off be so contentious uh, that you know bitcoin split into bitcoin cash and then bitcoin cash uh, split into sv uh, and and we're kind of like going spiraling down this uh, rabbit hole of people who are willing to go like more and, and more to one of those extremes um on the on the ethereum side it's also interesting because uh it's if i recall correctly that 
particular trade-off is actually decided by miners and there's essentially a minor vote with like how much gas is allowed to be spent uh in every block which is essentially uh results in you know how much data is allowed to be put in every block um and then uh, i've also had uh some fun running ripple nodes uh back in the day and you know the transactions on ripple are practically free and uh if i recall correctly the like the total amount of disk space to run a fully validating ripple node i think is over 10 terabytes at this point maybe even higher um, just to put just to put that into context um so cost to maintain ripple versus bitcoin and and then um the the the, the rate at which that node is increasing what what does that ultimately look like uh, you know, in terms of just computing power in space, uh, you can run a Bitcoin node on a Raspberry Pi 4 and sync it in a day or two. Uh, and Ethereum... Is a full archival node, not a prune node, which correct. would just have the latest unspent transaction outputs, which um, is basically the, the latest state of the network. Uh, yeah, so you would need, you know, a hard drive, uh, preferably solid state drive for any of these uh, mm -hmm. on Bitcoin that's like at least 300 gigabytes. Um, on the Ethereum side, if you are pruning, then I think the disk space ends up being around 300 gigabytes, but due to the complexity of the protocol, you end up having to do, um, tens of terabytes of disk reads and writes. And that's what really slows down the syncing process to the point mm -hmm. that, uh, if you have a spinning hard drive, you're never going to be able to sync, um, it just doesn't have enough uh, IO throughput to ever catch up with the chain tip. But it, on my benchmark machine, which has about $2,000 worth of hardware and has one of those fancy, uh, basically RAM based NVMe hard drives that can do hundreds of megabytes in IO per second. Last time I did a sync a few weeks ago, um, it took between one to two weeks uh, to sync the, the full Ethereum history. Um, I would like to do a Ripple node sync at some time, but I literally just don't have the hardware to do it. Like I would have, I would, I would probably need at least like uh, five to $10,000 worth of hardware, you know, build a huge rate array essentially uh, to have enough uh, space to do that. And um, it's interesting to look at some of the other projects, you know, like the, the Bitcoin forks and try to estimate, you know, how far down the path they would go. Um, you know, the, the thing about, uh, all of the other Bitcoin forks is they, they actually are not used enough to actually push any of the, the software set thresholds. So we haven't, to my chagrin, uh, been able to actually see what happens, you know, when those networks get pushed to capacity, like we have seen with, uh, with Ethereum and Ripple and, um, maybe some has, of has, has any other blockchain come close to that? I mean, I, I know, you know, people talk about EOS and Tron in particular as, as running a lot of transactions. You don't know how much actual economic activity is going on. And, you know, uh, each have been, you know, criticized for different reasons, EOS and delegated proof of stake, because, um, it's, you know, led to some cartel like dynamics, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is a form of censorship, uh, and then Tron because it's, it's a little bit more technically unwieldy, but, but have you looked at any of those other chains? Those would seem to be the, the couple of next in line, but maybe yeah, um, finance, I, I don't know. I don't know how far, how far down the list you've gone. 
I, I haven't looked at Tron. I wanted to look at EOS uh, recently, you know, just a month mm-hmm. or so ago. And it was, I don't know, I spent like an hour trying to figure out how to run an EOS node and just gave up. I didn't care enough. I mean, maybe if I had, you know, kept at it, I could figure it out. Um, I think mm-hmm. there was like one project that had some Dockerized components that allowed you to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it seemed to me like it was challenging enough that there probably are not many people running EOS nodes. Makes sense. Um, let's uh, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know how um, relevant it is to our audience to go deep into the scaling uh, debate, but I think the most interesting Bitcoin scaling proposal since SegWit has been a combination of uh, Schnorr signatures, uh, Taproot. And ultimately, Lightning, which I'm sure more, many more people are familiar with Lightning. And you yourselves supported Lightning via a, uh, an out-of-the-box Lightning node that was sold uh, to much fanfare via Casa. You've since discontinued that. Um, so I don't know if there's signal there or, or exactly what the reasoning was for uh, pulling the plug on, on that particular side of the business. But as you think about layer two versus layer one, that was obviously the layer two uh, de facto scaling solution that, that most people still talk about as, as being maybe not a cure-all, but, but one of the primary um, you know, meta protocols that, that could increase the transaction throughput and allow for smaller transactions on Bitcoin, which right now would be very, very expensive to conduct. Um, how do you map out the scaling solutions today and how important are those three different uh, proposed solutions to what you're doing at Casa? Yeah, so, you know, Lightning is still very cutting edge and moving at a fast pace. And so, you know, it was a lot of, of work for our engineers just to keep up with what was happening with the Lightning protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a, a product standpoint that we kind of unintentionally created two disparate products when we were trying to create uh, one a more homogenous product. And, and we we ended up kind of attracting a different sector of, of people in the Bitcoin space with that Our original product, which is really meant to be a super high security self-custody uh, solution for people uh, keeping their keys uh, in a multi-sig setup that's backed by hardware devices. A number of, of business reasons why we felt like it made more sense to devote our resources to the original thing, uh, which is just simple key custody. Uh, that is still a very big problem, and we feel like it's a more valuable problem at this point in time, simply because people are storing much larger amounts of their wealth, uh, you know, on chain as opposed to with on these uh, second layer protocols. So, you know, a lot more risk, uh, therefore a lot more opportunity for us as a business. And um, in terms of the other things like uh, Schnorr, interesting to us, you know, for the key master product for the on chain uh, transactions, especially because we are creating, you know, fairly large multi-sig um, transactions, uh, three of five and three of six even. Uh, with us. That does a couple of things that, that ends up taking up a lot more space on the blockchain. Um, it's also in and of itself a slight privacy and fingerprinting issue. And 
if we're able to aggregate all of those signatures, save a lot of space, um, we save a lot of fees and transaction costs, and also we improve our privacy significantly. Though I'm most interested uh, on the privacy front by what regard to uh, aggregated signatures plus coin join, you know, plus on-chain mixing. I, I feel like that we're we're kind of on the brink of another sort of privacy war right now in the Bitcoin space as we're starting to see some companies um, shut down accounts uh, because of mixing activities. And, and that is quite simply because the, the mixers that exist today are not good enough. And with signature aggregation, I think that we can really take them to the next level. Can you break this down a little bit more? I agree with you. And, and I've written about this may, maybe being the cause of the next fork certainly the cause of, of quite a bit of friction between the, the cypherpunk crowd and then the economic majority, uh, which was you know, much, uh, much discussed in, in the last uh, user-activated software during the SegWit2x scaling debate. The, the concept was, well, the economic majority, the nodes, um, they want Bitcoin to remain as is. They, don't, you know, they, they want to ensure that there is no hard fork and, and change in consensus, which would split the network. Well, this time around, I do feel personally that it's much, much different. And the quote unquote economic majority likely wants to be private enough where they're pseudonymous, but doesn't want to be so private that there are mass delistings or mass account shutdowns at all of the regulated edges of the network, which is what provides all the liquidity and allows the network to grow in practice. Um, and, and likely will be true, I, I think, for the foreseeable future. How do you deconstruct this privacy battle in and, and terms of both timing, in terms of who the key players will be, and, and ultimately how you think this resolves? Well, I think one of the, the nice things about the approach that's being taken to all of this is that uh, if we get signature aggregation in the way that it looks like we're, we're pushing towards, then it shouldn't even be possible for third parties like exchanges to know that you are aggregating a bunch of signatures because on chain, it just looks like a regular single signature. Mm -hmm. um, that I think is one of the more important things uh, about privacy is that sure, it's nice if you can just encrypt whatever you're doing so that an, an adversary looks at it and just sees a bunch of uh, gibberish. However, when you do that, you're still uh, signaling that something is going on. And, and so that's kind of like what's, what's happening right now with the current state of coin mixing is that an exchange may not be able to track your coins through the mixing process, but they know that you have mixed them. So the real question is, can we get to the point where you can mix your coins and it's not even obvious to observers on the blockchain that you have done that? And um, I think that that's a better way of going about it uh, than doing something, you know, for example, like what we see on, on Zcash with uh, Z addresses where, you know, it's obvious to someone that, you know, you're sending your money into a Z address and then who knows where it may pop out. I've actually, I've been kind of surprised on the regulatory front that more exchanges have been friendly to Zcash, though maybe you would know better than I of, 
if any of them are even supporting Z addresses. I don't, I don't believe that they are. Uh, I I believe that it's normally T to T. I I could be wrong on this and and maybe it varies from exchange to exchange. Um, What's interesting is you've got this, uh, this general dynamic globally where states want to surveil everything and they want to surveil everything, particularly in the financial system, in the name of combating terrorism and money laundering and all the scary things that people do with private transactions. But what that's led to is a highly vulnerable state of personal identity and, and you know, financial information where uh, if you have backdoors, if you have the ability to surveil, then it means that anybody does, right? So it's not just going to the CIA or the FBI or, or you know, Chinese intelligence or Russian intelligence. It's, it's ubiquitous. Um, and so you know, Zcash is interesting um, in the sense that they've kind of split things cleanly down the middle where you're either pseudonymous, which is basically not anonymous uh, because of, of, you know, coin tracing and, and analytics techniques and, and companies like Elliptic and Chainalysis that do this full time. And then there's the Z addresses, which are completely private. Now, if you want an enterprise to ultimately adopt cryptocurrency, you need that private element because if you're JP Morgan, you don't want to be transferring customer funds that can be descrambled. Um, and then, you know, now you're, you're in breach of, of your duties to your customers in, in terms of ensuring that, that um, those transactions are private. There is no ability to separate, you know, um, sharing or, or, or being able to be just private enough so that you can put this on a public chain, but um, anyone can still analyze it if, if they're looking you know, closely enough. So you really do need instead uh, some version of Z addresses or some version of Schnorr signatures that, that do all this automatically if other major entities are ultimately going to be able to participate. Uh, in this ecosystem, and they, if they're, if you're dealing with the regulated edges, they still might have the same requirements to divulge that information to regulators, or the, um, or the exchanges uh, might have the reporting requirements to say we don't know exactly where this went, um, but we know that J.P. Morgan customer A sent this money to what they claim was a personal wallet, or what they claim was you know X Y Z service, and and you basically might be able to come up with a, a two tiered. Um, surveillance network that identifies all the counterparties without necessarily breaking the fungibility of, of the network. If yeah, I just I mean, lost like half my listeners, <laughs> I, I apologize. You're going to be able to like synthesize that much more eloquently maybe. Um, but I, I guess the punchline that I was trying to drive at is how can we thread that needle versus put the exchanges in a position where the regulators say, I didn't realize that Bitcoin core developers were implementing these privacy changes. It makes it incompatible with our FATF framework. And now you can't abide by the travel rules. So, you know, sorry, you can't support Bitcoin any longer because that's the nuclear scenario. It seems implausible, but that could be where some of the tension is. Well, a lot of times I I come back to the question of, well, how does the existing network work? I mean, by network, I mean, financial system, Um, you know, the, the same type of problems ish are are also in play when you're just talking about straight up cash. I mean, mm-hmm. there's tons of small businesses that operate on a mostly cash basis and, and they're making cash deposits and cash withdrawals. And 
Uh, I don't believe that any financial institutions are on the hook for tracing, you know, where the money comes from and where it goes, though, you know, they are supposed to file suspicious activity reports if certain things happen. And I would just imagine or hope that, you know, that same type of, you know, sanity uh, continues to persist uh, and just moves into the digital realm. We've, um, we've covered a lot of ground so far. Uh, and I think you and I philosophically seem to be more aligned uh, than we're different. And if, if not, you know, very tightly aligned in, in a lot of our, our thinking, maybe because we've been at this for a while, maybe we're just kindred spirits um, or, or maybe we're just both drinking the same Kool-Aid. Um, I do want to spend the last little bit talking specifically about, uh, about CASA because uh, your full-time efforts are very much focused on self-custody, on empowering people to not be so reliant on some of these regulated edges, to actually take control over their uh, financial condition and, and, and you know, have a bit of self-sovereignty with respect to uh, you know, owning Bitcoin and being their own bank, quote unquote, TM. Um, what's, um, where is the focus these days and, and, and what has CASA um, delivered and, and, and really carved out as its own niche uh, in this uh, Bitcoin hardware and, and, and personal key security sector? Yeah, so there are a ton of different options for people to secure their private keys in this space. Uh, there, there's an entire range, of course, from fully custodial, uh, where I think a lot of people just buy their coins on an exchange and leave them there uh, forever until either they decide to sell them or the exchange gets hacked and they lose them all. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the full uh, do-it-yourself model of um, download one of the dozens of different uh, wallets that are out there and transfer the coins into your wallet. And then you're fully responsible for you know, keeping the backups of that wallet. And uh, if anything goes wrong, there is no one you can complain to. So I think that Costa really fits into a... Um, a kind of middle ground. Uh, we are in the business of helping people help themselves. Uh, we are not a full custody provider. At most, we will hold one out of three or one out of five or six keys, uh, depending upon the user's wallet setup. But what we're trying to go for is to leverage a lot of the expertise and things that I've learned over the years and build a piece of software that is incredibly user-friendly, but is also architected in such a way that it guides people down the path of best practices. And really what I'm referring to in that is, is pushing them into a security model where they're able to leverage a lot of the, the high security aspects that are available within this system, uh, but just doing it by following the instructions in a mobile app, essentially. And so that's what we've really done is we've provided uh, Android and iOS uh, mobile experience that's uh, quite slick, but is backed by your uh, your retail products, your treasures, your ledger, your uh, cold card, uh, basically coming in the next week or so now. And by then pushing your private keys onto these dedicated devices, you know that gives you a level of robustness against hackers. It also 
gives you another level of robustness by geographically separating the devices. Uh, that, that also saves you from physical attackers and any type of natural disaster. Now, of course, you start going down the path of, well, you know, how many different things you're trying to protect against. And, and, and that's where we really get to what I think the, the third uh, interesting value add of CASA is in addition to the usability and the security is the service. And this is something where it's obviously a trade-off. Um, the only way that you can be a hundred percent private and anonymous within Bitcoin is to never talk to anybody else about what you're doing. You know, basically mm -hmm. do everything yourself. The downside there is that, uh, you become a potential single point of failure in that if you miss something, if you don't account for something that might go wrong, you could end up in a catastrophic situation. Mm -hmm. And so while our, our software is designed to be user-friendly for anyone, it also makes sense for a lot of technical users. And, and I'm really building this software for myself um, to use something like this because I have a limited amount of time. And one of the reasons that I uh, pivoted out of BitGo and into CASA is because despite all of my knowledge and all the um, expertise that I've built in this space, I was spending basically a whole weekend every year working on updating and refreshing my cold storage setup. And I just felt like that was a huge pain. I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to do it. It's just like boring IT data backup practice type stuff that nobody yeah. wants to do, even if we know how to do it. So uh, the, this, this third level, this third, uh, I guess, pillar, the, the service tier is something that you often only really get with like full custody wallets, uh, mm -hmm. your Coinbase, your, your exchanges and whatnot. And, and that's basically set up so that, you know, our, our premium level of users know that they can call us uh, pretty much any time and, uh, you know, get an actual human on the other end of the line. And, and, you know, that is one of the reasons why our, our, our service is more expensive than most, um, is, is that, you know, we have actual humans who are available to, to talk to you. And, you know, we've put a lot of time and effort into building the system that we believe uh, offers a lot of value, both to non-technical and technical people. And so there's a lot of ways that we can continue uh, improving this. And then actually inheritance is the next big thing that we've been working on. We've just noticed that a lot of our users are getting to the point where, you know, they're having major life events, they're getting married, they're having children. You know, these are the things that spur people to start thinking about, you know, what happens if I'm not around anymore? Uh, what, you know, what happens to the people I care about? And, and inheritance is one of those things that I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space will say, oh, I'm not going to die anytime soon. I'll just put it off, and, you know, and I'll worry about that later when, you know, I feel like it's a more pressing issue. And, you know, that is just another way that things can end up in disaster. So have, have you seen, have you seen any uptick uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks on that premium tier uh, just due to the coronavirus? Because I, we mentioned this right before we kind of started the camera rolling there, there seems to be a high correlation of folks within crypto uh, that are, um, are, that are preppers or that are studying the, the, 
the coronavirus in Asia and, and thinking through the potential exponential growth and the, the kind of catastrophic scenarios, maybe quite a bit sooner than, than, you know, the general public. Um, and I'm not sure if that's just because folks are wired, wired differently or where the correlation is, but, uh, I, at least anecdotally, I can say that's true from some of the conversations that, that I've had over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not sure if that's translated into new business or new inquiries. You know, I don't uh, generally uh, deal with the customer onboarding process. I'm, I'm not aware of anyone mentioning coronavirus. In general, I would say that our uh, interest is fairly strongly correlated with the price of Bitcoin. You know, as the price goes up a lot, uh, people check their balance and all of a sudden they're like, oh crap, I just passed this threshold. I should probably actually do something about it. Your personal security is infamous in the industry. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the quick tips that you would give people aside from using CASA uh, to make themselves more robust against physical attacks, uh, because, you know, many people think, well, I'm just going to get a ledger and I'm going to put money there. Mm-hmm. Um, or they think, oh, it's okay. Like my, my stuff is in Coinbase or Zappo or, or, you know, I'm working with BitGo, um, as a, as a third party. So, so there are options available, but, but it seems like most people, um, neglect the physical, physical security risks, which today might not be, that glaring, but you've certainly heard of instances, you know, in the U S internationally where, where people have put themselves physically at risk. And you would imagine that becomes more pervasive if we see another mega boom, like we saw in 2017, uh, particularly as, as people get bullish around the having narrative and, and, you know, many, many Bitcoin bulls and, and crypto bulls in general think that we'll see another, you know, super cycle over the course of the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that is another one of my projects is just trying to keep track of all of those known physical attacks. And to date, I think there have been fewer than 50 that we know about. There are definitely mm-hmm. plenty of others, you know, that I've heard whispers of that, you know, people don't want publicized because it attracts more attention and mm-hmm. can attract more people that they don't want to attract. So... Uh, I actually just published a week or two ago this really extensive home defense guide uh, that I had been working on for quite a while, which mostly focuses on physical security. Mm-hmm. The short version is that you know security is never one thing. Um, you really want to have multiple layers of defenses. Um, operational security is really your first line of defense, which is, you know, don't go around proclaiming to the world that, you know, you own a bunch of an asset, especially a digital bearer asset that could potentially be stolen with a $5 wrench. Um, after that, uh, you may want to decide whether or not you want to go down the whole path that I did of trying to uh, protect your physical address. Um, that is, that's a privacy rabbit hole. That's difficult to follow unless you're in the United States and willing to spend, you know, thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, Otherwise, we're just talking about layers of traditional physical security, whether that's fences, doors, uh, dogs, uh, various means of barricading, um, you know, 
even interior doors and of course uh, weapons you know more active defenses if you are are comfortable with getting to to that level if like all of your passive defenses get breached you know what what do you do at that point uh, you know that's a personal choice everyone has to make and i go into a lot of the details there as well well, if, uh, I mean, maybe a, a, a good place to end as any, not uh, to kind of strike fear in people, but, uh, you know, I've, I find myself uh, saying this a lot the last couple of weeks as I've kind of gone down the coronavirus rabbit hole, you know, uh, prepared on panic, right? And, and that's, I think, the name of the game when it comes to uh, self-custody for a digital bearer instrument like Bitcoin, which is what you're doing at Casa. Certainly some of the recommendations uh, that, that you have and that we'll link to in the show notes in terms of physical preparedness and um, just, just general uh, meta-awareness so that you're not always trusting somebody else to protect you. Yeah, I mean, this is this ultimately comes down to making sure that you get rid of any single point of failure so that you don't have a catastrophe. You know, that's for both the digital realm and the physical realm. I mean, the reason why I do a lot of things that people consider to be crazy on the physical side is because as I make the assumption that I only have one life and uh, I don't want you know, some weird edge case uh, causing my life to end any shorter than it might need to be if only I had prepared for that weird edge case. Well said. Um, well, Jameson, I think I'm going to try my best to make sure that the cover art for this interview is you with the massive guns. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about your, your arms, uh, but, but rather the, uh, the, the post that you shared after the, uh, the attempted swatting attempt. Can, uh, maybe uh, since I brought it up and that's too, too juicy to just let slide, uh, can you just give the, the three minute version of that just to give people an example of, of you know, why this is not just science fiction, uh, but something to, to take more seriously? Sure. And this is an extreme edge case. I mean, I, I think that only around a thousand people in the United States have been swatted, uh, to my understanding. But uh, really what happened was, you know, my rise in prominence on Twitter got to the point where I had hundreds of me and just sort of a result of uh, the large numbers is that even though I believe the vast majority of people are good moral people who don't want to harm others, there is a small number of people out there who have some sort of mental disorder and they don't mind harming other people. And some of those people are technically sophisticated enough to find exploits in the existing systems that are out there. And one of these exploits that got used against me is the fact that We've gotten to the point technically where you can you can create anonymous phone calls that can't be traced even by government authorities. And on the other hand, we have a system of uh, reporting and law enforcement where you can, if you say the right words, get a large amount of deadly force uh, essentially directed at a specific target. And so someone made the right call to my local police department and claimed that they were me and claimed that they had uh, murdered people. And that resulted in my whole neighborhood getting locked down and you know, having armored cars and dozens of SWAT officers with rifles surrounding my house. So this is an edge case, uh, but it's the type of thing now that I am trying to be prepared for. And it's why I've gone down this other privacy rabbit hole to make sure that I'm 
defended against that. And the only way that I found to defend against that is to make sure that nobody has my physical address that they can give to law enforcement to do such a targeted attack. Well, uh, it's, uh, I, I feel as if your story uh, should be a wake up call to others that are, you know, in the industry full time, because the, the, the growth in crypto has this funny way of making previously anonymous people that are public that are, you know, pitching their own projects and ideas. Um, very, very uh, not private overnight. And, um, and, and so, you know, life comes at you fast, but, but this is especially something that uh, is probably better to mentally um, prepare for versus uh, to do after the fact. For my part, I'm already doomed, but the good news is uh, anyone that, that wants to, you know, come and, and, you know, kidnap me for ransom, uh, I don't have a whole lot. So my, my biggest concern is that people are going to look at the fact that I got in in 2013 and they're not going to remember all of the times that I've told the story about liquidating my 401k to buy Bitcoin. They're just going to hear, oh no, you were in in 2013. So I'm going to open up the account, try to pay the ransom, and then they're going to say, where are the rest? And then they're going to shoot me. <laughs> That's the problem with duress wallets is that you never know if what you give them will be sufficient to make them go away. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, but, you know, a little bit of gallows humor. Um, but all things considered, uh, Jameson, uh, I think your, your general demeanor, everything that you've shared uh, with the industry and, and created for the industry so far uh, makes you uh, one of the more admirable folks and, and more pleasant to talk to for sure. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the show and uh, wish you the best of luck with, uh, with whatever's next with CASA. I uh, strongly recommend folks go and check it out. The website and the Twitter handle one more time is... Website is keys.casa, K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And Twitter handle is Casa Hoddle, exactly like it sounds like. And at Lop with the flex uh, as, an early, as an early Twitter pioneer. So Jameson, uh, thank you again. We'll catch up real soon. And for everybody that's tuning in, thank you for watching another episode or listening to another episode of Unqualified Opinions. We'll be back in just a couple days with another good one. Until then, peace.